Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here, News 95.5 AM 750, WSB and of theresurgent.com. I've got joining me now John Ryder. He is a lawyer out of Memphis, Tennessee, the co-chair of the Republican National Lawyers Association and on the an adjunct faculty member at Vandy teaching election law. And he pinned an op-ed a few weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal about the gerrymandering case uh, that was before the Supreme Court. And Eric Holder going around the country now, here in Georgia and elsewhere, working with Democrats on essentially uh, trying to get uh, gerrymandering ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Now, John, when I was in law school, I distinctly remember learning uh, in Baker versus Carr and others that a lot of these issues on gerrymandering were political issues. And it seems like courts have more and more decided that they can weigh in on the political issues as well as all the other issues. Oh, isn't that the bane of our existence uh, in, in uh, constitutional law? The uh, the doctrine of the political question, which used to be a barrier for judicial involvement, uh, has been uh, seriously eroded. Um, you're quite right. When you and I were in law school, uh, the political question doctrine was alive and well. And that, what that means simply is that on a political question, uh, the courts, as one of three co-equal branches, will not uh, intervene and interfere with the actions of uh, another co-equal branch. And that prevented the courts for many years from um, correcting uh, malapportionment, uh, such as uh, the court faced in Baker versus Carr, uh, which of course originated here in Tennessee, uh, and that started the process down the slippery slope. And where we are with political gerrymandering, which is uh, what the case out of Wisconsin, Gill versus Whitford, is all about, uh, is um, a question that first came up in the 1980s before the Supreme Court in a case called Davis versus Bandemer. And uh, there the court said, well, yeah, we think you can consider uh, political gerrymandering, uh, but we're not sure uh, what 
you would do about it uh, and how you would measure it. And so then began the judicial, the search for a judicially manageable standard. And that's the sort of the magic phrase. And there were two or three other cases after that where the court said, no, that's not it. Uh, No, this isn't it either. No, it's somewhere else. And uh, the plaintiffs in this case think they have found the holy grail of a judicially manageable standard. (laughs) And they call it the efficiency gap. (laughs) Now, what is the efficiency gap? The efficiency gap purports to measure what they call wasted votes. So if you live in a district that is um, heavily Democrat and you vote for the Republican nominee and your candidate loses, uh, they consider your vote wasted. Uh, And likewise, uh, if you uh, live in a heavily Republican district and vote for the winning candidate, uh, the votes in excess of the number of votes needed to win are considered wasted. Um, so this formula is essentially what it measures is um, two um, redistricting techniques often called cracking and fracking. And uh, that is um, uh, cracking and packing uh, cracking being splitting up communities of interest and packing being jamming as many of your opponents in one district as is uh, mathematically possible. <laughs> and this has been happening since Elbridge Jerry did it way back when, and but suddenly it's unconstitutional. Oh, actually, even before that, uh, well, yeah. even before that, there's uh, there is some evidence that uh, Patrick Henry tried to uh, redistrict. Uh, uh, James Madison out of a out of a seat, uh, but uh, but but you're right. It goes back to the early days of the republic, and it, it, you know it goes back to the the whole concept of representation, uh, and whether we have in this country we have single member districts, and the candidate with the most votes wins. That's that's our system. Mm-hmm. A lot of European governments uh, and parliaments have proportional representation where you don't vote so much for the, uh, for the candidate as you do for the party. And if the party, the, you know, social Democrats or whoever, uh, gets 31.6% of the vote, then they're allocated 31.6% of the representatives in that body. And the fact of the matter is um, the efficiency gap or any other formula that is used to allocate representation or to evaluate the fairness of representation ultimately leads us in the direction of proportional representation. Uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in one of the early political gerrymandering cases uh, warned against this precisely. She said that any attempt to remedy this problem will lead to some rough form of proportionality. And indeed, in this case, uh, plaintiffs advocated the efficiency gap as the uh, uh, magic uh, uh, formula. And uh, then on appeal, they sort of abandoned the efficiency gap. And now they're arguing for a different formula called political asymmetry. Um, and all of this was described by the Chief Justice as sociological 
gobbledygook. <laughs> and uh, it, it is, you know, mathematically, it has the appeal, you know, the illusion of precision because there are mathematical symbols involved. Right. There, there, ha- there is the illusion of precision there. And it doesn't really exist. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, the application of either of these formulas requires an unelected judge to make a determination of how many Democrats and how many Republicans is fair. Mm-hmm. What what's the right balance in the General Assembly? You know, should it be forty eight to fifty two percent or should it be maybe forty seven fifty three or and you know what what's the right balance and then to the measure the outcome the against that predetermined uh fairness. Well and miracle a lot of miracles, problems with that. You, you, <laughs> a lot you of put problems a with Democrat that. in charge of the uh, a Democratic appointed judge and I bet you I know what he's gonna say versus a Republican judge. Uh funny how that works. Now Gill versus Whitford is the case and it went to the Supreme Court. And it, my big question is, as as we know these days in America, um he, Everything comes down to what does Anthony Kennedy think, and uh, it, it seems like if I read the reports right, he really didn't tip his hand. No, he didn't. Um, you know, as the senior justice, senior associate justice, he gets to ask the first question, and so he let off the questioning, at, but spent about half of his time um, asking the solicitor general of the state of Wisconsin questions about uh, standing which is, did the plaintiffs actually have the right to bring the suit? A very interesting question, because normally in redistricting cases, Eric Erickson can bring a lawsuit if he feels that his district has been uh, improperly drawn. You know, too few voters, too many voters, um, you know, bad lines, whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, But Eric Erickson cannot bring a lawsuit because John Ryder's district has been improperly drawn. Well, this lawsuit was brought by a law professor, surprise, surprise, (laughs) uh, who felt whose own district was heavily Democrat, but he felt that his First Amendment right of association was being uh, diminished because there weren't enough Democrats in the general Wisconsin general assembly. So he's challenging the whole plan, not because of his district, but because of the overall redistricting plan. And so the question is, can, does he have standing to bring an action challenging the whole plan? And about half of the time, uh, half of the questions, uh, half of the time devoted to questioning by the justices dealt with that issue alone. Uh, and that, that again, uh, most redistricting cases in the past have been brought under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and have dealt with the diminution of the individual's rights. This case has this additional element of being brought under the First Amendment right of association, claiming that the plaintiffs have a right to have uh, a certain <laughs> a certain magic number of uh, like-minded citizens represented in uh, the General Assembly. And it, that's why this case is really about proportional representation 
it's not about malapportionment. It's about driving the this country away from the single member district where your representative represents you and your neighbors to a system where your representative represents one party or the other. <laughs> well, naturally, a law professor brought a case like this. <laughs> yes, right. Of course. Oh, so, it, it, yeah, this is the world of pure theory. Yeah. yeah you know, I, I find that, well, having come from a, a very liberal uh, law school, increasingly so, the, the number of academic cases that they would like to pursue based on the theories they've come up with reading obscure texts from Europe, uh, it, it seems to grow in this country. <laughs> it does. The importation of um, political norms from outside the U.S. Uh, that are being used to interpret the U.S. Constitution is, um, well, let's say disturbing. Right. I mean, you know, this is our text. It should be interpreted in light of our experience and our laws uh, rather than uh, measured against the, the European Court of Justice. Yeah, well, I don't think their precedents have a lot to to say on the interpretation of the first or the 14th amendments. When do we expect the Supreme Court? uh, I would assume sometime after the first of the year. um, When do we expect this case to come out from the court? Well, well, let's see. Wait, 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 what what kind of crystal ball do you have? Okay, (laughs) but I'm assuming we probably won't be waiting until June when they go home next year. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's entirely possible. They do, you know, there's a, uh, there is a tendency for the court to defer some of these major decisions until the very end of the term, which will be the end of uh, June of next year. Um, or once they have an opinion written or opinions written on which everybody has signed off, they could issue the opinion. Certainly it won't be until after the first of the year. Uh, I think everybody expects that the four more liberal justices will uh, um, issue an opinion calling for judicial intervention in the area of political gerrymandering. The four more conservative justices will issue an opinion or opinions um, calling for judicial restraint in this area. And Justice Kennedy uh has a number of options as to the opinion he writes. <laughs> and he'll probably be the one writing it. Well, John, listen, thanks very much for spending some time discussing this case. Uh, huge implications nationwide here in Georgia and elsewhere uh, in particular. And uh, boy, the, the 2018 election will be highly determinative, I guess, as we get into redistricting in 2020. It, indeed it will. Eric, good to be with you. Thanks very much. Thank you so much.